Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today, we're going to take a look at the difficult subject of rare earths. We've all heard about them. We know they're essential, but we don't really understand them. For our journey, we have uh, today John Cooch, Executive Director of the Thorium Energy Alliance. He comes to us from Chicago. And David Zakin, Chief Executive Officer of the Key Elements Group. And he comes to us from London. John, would you like to start us by explaining rare earths, how they're used, and why they are so critical and in such dangerous supply routes? So the, the, the rare earths right now, the only form of rare earths that matters to industry right now are metallic rare earths and rare earths used in magnets. And right now that is essentially 100% controlled by Chinese production. Uh, and so there's a de minimis amount outside of China, but the vast 99% of metals, and you have to understand that metals are the only thing that matter when we're talking about rare earths. So rare earths aren't rare at all. They're, they're everywhere throughout the world. You know, the, the beaches of Brazil, the beaches of Florida, all over India has vast resources of rare earths. So there's not a shortage of rare earths. There's a shortage of capacity to take rare earths and turn them into metals and magnets. And that came about uh, because we basically decided we didn't want to be in that business anymore. There really isn't very much money in rare earths. When you say we, we mean the United States. Uh, the Western world. So France used to make a lot of rare earths. Japan was the last man standing, if you count Japan in the West, uh, as uh, having a lot of production capacity. Uh, and of course, the United States of America used to be the world leader in rare earth production, but they were they were never used and still aren't used in huge quantities because uh, a little bit of rare earth goes a long way. So China has very cleverly said, hey, we'll take this. And once they've uh, actually uh, harnessed uh, this, this production capacity to uh, you know, a great monopoly extent, they've suddenly been able to take other companies and say, hey, do you wanna make starter motors, Ford Motor Company? Well, you gotta make them in China. Do you wanna make computer components, Hitachi? You gotta make them in China. You know, Anything that requires rare earths from alloys to magnets, uh, any sort of display screen, anything that needs uh, rare earth phosphors. So all of that has to be done in China. So they've leveraged, they, they lose they lose a great deal of money producing rare earths, uh, rare earth metals in China, but they leverage it by bringing in $7 trillion of manufacturing into China. So that's, that's a pretty good loss leader, you know, a couple billion dollars of loss on the rare earth business leading to $7 trillion. And the final reason that this happened was uh, back in the early 80s, late 70s, so back then, uh, just as uh, Carter was leaving and uh, Reagan came in, we changed the rules as to how we handled source material. And the interesting thing about rare earths is they are almost always found bound up in uh, uh, phosphor uh, minerals. So apatite, phasacite, xenotime, monazite, these are all phosphor minerals 
and you almost get as much thorium or uranium as you do rare earth minerals out of these phosphor. So you get, you get a mine, for instance, mines in Florida that mine phosphor for fertilizer that then go ahead and throw away huge quantities of rare earths because they're bound, they're intermixed with some radioactive material. And so people just don't want to bother with it. You know, the companies that are mining phosphor are in the phosphor business, not rare earths, not certainly not uranium. Uh, companies that mine iron or mine titanium, they're in the iron business or the titanium business. They don't want anything to do with this. And uh, so that is how we got where we are. Okay, John, just tell us quickly, what, is rare, what do rare earths do? We had motors before we put rare earths in them. We had magnets before we put rare earths in them. So what real simply rare earths are almost like catalysts in that they greatly increase whatever effect it is you want. So do you want extra bright phosphors? Rare earths can super accentuate the, the colors. And, and they're a multiplier. They're a yeah, multiplier. So, so they're I, I, must tell you, I must tell you that I played with uh, uh, basically refrigerator magnets, the things we stick on the fridge with yeah. dent dental appointments. Uh, and ones which have been treated with rare earths, it's a night and day difference. They it's, it's a huge difference. It's jump a, out of your hand. They, the power of the magnetism is so enormous. Yeah, and uh, we're not even using the most powerful ones. I mean, there's... We could use homium, which is exceedingly rare, but a homium magnet, which is what, you know, the military wants, you know, things like homium magnets or ultra high temperature uh, samarium magnets. This is what the military wants. And yet our military is nearly 100% reliant on China for the supply chain. So uh, D David, let's bring you in now. Tell us, first of all, uh, what does your company do? Key elements group we operate um, as i was born in former soviet union life in former soviet union often comes um, every time you think about cold war so i remember in my early childhood uh, when everything was prohibited you couldn't listen to uh, voice of america it was technically illegal so i remember that any information which was coming, any legitimate information which was coming from Western world was through Voice of America. And um, uh, if you listen to Soviet propaganda going in, in, in school, in high school, everything seemed to be um, working around Soviet Union, its agenda, and aggressive capitalists from United States. So this is how we were growing up. <laughs> but when this, we, uh, excuse me, David, this was in Ukraine. It was in Ukraine, which was part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, of course. So, so, um, and all you hear is about weapons, how aggressor will come to Soviet Union and take over Soviet Union, and how you need to get prepared, and then. Every major holiday, you see weapons going on Red Square on TV. And um, so at some point, you start wondering why nobody is coming, why nobody is coming to take over uh, Soviet Union or, or Ukraine, per se. And when you get a little bit uh, older, you start reading books, you understand that nobody wants to come, that this is propaganda. So when I left, former Soviet, Soviet Union collapsed, 
uh, we left uh, with my family to Canada. We couldn't leave for a very long time, but it's another story. Um, so then you start comparing the uh, current situation with situation uh, I, I witnessed growing up in Soviet Union. And what I see now is we are in the middle of significant Cold War between West and East, between United States and allies and China. And uh, when Cold War is going on, weaponization of uh, really important materials is part of the game. So this is what we see. And then going back to uh, crisis uh, oil high, 1973, where Arab world was trying to weaponize oil. Um, what happened at the end is countries decided to become independent. So rely, you are as strong as your suppliers are. And I think this is what we see right now. So uh, to go back to your questions, we are advising companies operating in emerging markets uh, in Africa, in Balkans, in uh, former Soviet Union. Um, and what we see, the, the current global trend when we talk about uh, rare earth, um, we see that developed economies right now after the, in the post-COVID world, Europe is treating China with much more salt than they used to do uh, the way China handled uh, discussions around nature of COVID, how quickly Chinese economy came back, uh, how confused messaging around current W, uh, uh, current messaging around nature of the COVID and uh, how much China would like to control it. It all doesn't help the current climate where um, each country is on its own when it comes dealing with all major issues. And going back to John's point is that when you are relying on your allies, you know that the product will come on time. But when you're relying on a significant uh, uh, counterparty who is not on the same side with you, you know you need to revisit your current arrangements. And it was quite exciting to see President Biden coming to White House and on, I think on February 24th, issuing executive order uh, where he asked for heads of agencies to revisit within 100 days uh, the current supply chain and see if there are any weaknesses in uh, not only in the, in, the, in the rare earth metals, but food supply, medical, pharmaceuticals. So I think we are, we are currently at the stage where we are, we are about to see next level of disruption. In, in David, could I just say one yes. thing? My organization, Thorium Energy Alliance, <clears throat> that, that I founded to deal with this thorium issue of this thorium associated with critical materials, uh, you know, we are trying to assist the White House in a modest way, right, to get some uh, feedback from industry. But I will tell you that you cannot get uh, large companies, I'll let you fill in the blank, who like large industrial companies, uh, large electronics companies, because who's their biggest supplier? China. Who's their biggest potential customer? China. So China has them coming and going. And you can't believe 
what the extraordinary teeth pulling we've been doing, begging and crying and, you know, shaming ourselves, you know, trying to get anybody from a name brand company to go in front in a private meeting and tell the White House just how how, how they are so behind the eight ball that the entire supply chain is completely captured from mine to metal to magnet by China. You know, China isn't just in China anymore. They're in Brazil capturing critical materials in Brazil. They are all over Africa. They are all over Australia. They are, they're, they are marching around the world uh, because they know their own internal consumption is going to outstrip their own ability to mine. But so they want to just make the metals. That's the only part they want anymore. The rest of the world can be suppliers. So they want the whole rest of the world to be an extractive economy feeding into the industrial base of China. So I, I just wanted to point that out that, you, you know, one reason you're going to see pretty cowardly responses from Europe and the United States yeah, yeah, they'll say, "Oh well, we can solve this." If you know, and but they they'll never take action unless they're they're forced to. John David, isn't it a case that we have, and I say we in the free nations of the world, the West, for shorthand, have willingly put our heads into the dragon's mouth. Name a port, and if there's any chance of buying in, China has bought in, including the Panama Canal. Um, what is the motive there, David? I think the motive is to control supply of the materials going both ways, because as we know, infrastructure is the next level of implementation of your control. So if you control supply, you control the port, you know the material will come and leave. Um, and um, uh, going back to, to what John said, I would like to believe that we, we will be able to see some changes now in the next year, because I believe that this is first time uh, we hear conversation coming from capitals of uh, G7, where in the past, uh, Europe was much more quiet on the issue of critical uh, dependence on Chinese product. So, I do believe that um, the, 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 the future in the next year or two, we will see significant amount of money invested in the critical infrastructure in rare earth uh, to minimize dependence. Uh, if we look at Australia, um, they just recently, their geological agency just recently signed agreement with U.S. Geological Agency and government of Australia um, made a statement a few times that they are willing to finance and support rare earth producers. But uh, David, I got to tell you, every one of those, everything from MP materials in California to Linus in Australia and Linus Blue Line, in fact, they all what do they do? They're, they're getting, they're extracting rare earths and doing concentrates and maybe oxides and nitrates, which are useless. There is no application for these. So where do they send the nitrates? Where do they send the oxides? 
They send them to China to get processed into metals. They are, we are just playing into the hands of China. We're building their supply chain for them. Great. So Australia says, go ahead, Linus, and produce uh, vast amounts of, of xenotime and send it to Malaysia. Where does it ultimately wind up? It winds up in China. And we, we need to commit to making a refinery, a metals refinery, so that we can make our own products in the, in the United States. And I don't care, Siemens needs to make stuff. You know, uh, Hitachi needs to make things, Fujitsu. The whole world needs this. I mean, and it, to, to, to your example, even Russia has understood this. Russia's going to develop a, a complete supply chain all the way to metals. Because even, even Russia and China, who are kind of good buddies, even Russia's like, man, we can't, we can't just put uh, all our eggs in one basket. And so we do too. I, I wish China all the best of luck. I, you know, they need to drag another billion people out of poverty. India does. I mean, all these countries should be doing this. This idea that we've created a single point failure, you know, in nuclear, we call that, you know, you can't have single point failure in nuclear, right? So we've just made an entire supply chain that is a single point failure. China could cut us off in two seconds. How, you know, are we really going to defend the South China Sea? What are we going to do? Stop fighting and say, China, please give us more gyroscopes for our cruise missiles. You know, how are we? Happen? How are we doing on stockpiling these essential metals, David? Are we doing Europe. well on stockpiling, or did we go so much to the to the excuse me to the just in time idea of supply chain that we're now just in time for everything, which we we just saw with the Suez Canal. It's not always the best way to be. So I'll just quickly, I'll let David comment, but I'll just say Cornerstone, the, the funding program for the Pentagon and uh, another program at the Pentagon, Cornerstone, they, they just wasted 40 to $80 million buying cerium and lanthanum nitrates and, and concentrates. The, the most useless, you know, there, there's literally almost no use for these things. And, and they just spent tons of money buying the the least used and least, they're, 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 they weren't buying metal. So we have no, the De Defense Logistics Agency, the DLA sold off the entire stockpile of, of rare earths several years ago. So so your answer is none. We, we have no strategic reserve at this Let's point. go to David. David, do you see any country uh, taking the lead and standing up against the Chinese monopoly? I don't see any country being able to resist the pressure of not going against China. So I can only see how United States together with Australia, um, hopefully with European Union, maybe India, Canada, can build a system which will allow to build independent, reliable supply chain outside of China. This is the only way forward. Uh, I don't believe United States um, will be well positioned to do it on its own without support of allies. There's no way, is there, David, to synthesize these materials. When we've been in short supply of a natural material like rubber, we came up with a synthetic rubber, which is now dominant and has been for decades. Uh, 
is there any chance either of you that we could work around rare earths and find some other way? Well, MIT came out with a report several years back that said there is no substitute for the effects that rare earths have and that all substitutes will always be secondary and second place. Ames Lab in Iowa has spent $40 million looking for substitute combinations of, of less critical materials. And it, it, it needs to be said here, this doesn't, you know, this does not get around the fact that, that rare earths are what we're talking about, but every, you know, nuclear graphite, tungsten, uh, cobalt, you know, the tin, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's 35 United States Geological Survey critical materials and rare earths, all 17 rare earths are listed as one, <laughs> you know, so there's really 70. So we're, you know, and to get on that list, we have to be more than 90% dependent on a foreign country for the, for those materials. And so, uh, what what should make you feel good, though, I think, is when we speak, we spoke to folks in Israel, Brazil, Malaysia, and I always say, why don't you do this? You guys have such great supplies and, and technology. And they say, we believe the United States can lead the way on this. And I'm like, I can't, I can't believe the United States still has such a great reputation, but they do. They really, they could, there's no reason why they couldn't do it. They just believe we can do it. I, and so I, I can't believe we won't, you know, live up to their high expectations of us. David, speak to that. Uh, next call, as soon as we're done, we'll make a few calls. I'm looking across the board and from your place in Europe and your global dealings of your organization, which is global. Um, uh, how do you see this dependence on China across the board going forward? And sometimes it's quite comical. You may remember when the European Union, uh, when its trade negotiation was an Englishman called Mendelssohn, who uh, was going to stop the import of women's bras, and they found out there weren't enough made anywhere in the world uh, to support Europe's women. They had to go back to Chinese <laughs> supply, which was both funny and tragic in a sense. It's not a high-tech item, uh, despite Howard Hughes' attempts to make it high-tech. I'm, I'm an optimist. I believe that after a certain point, uh, the same way as we uh, watched what happened after 1973, weaponization of oil, the same will happen in this industry. Uh, even though it takes years to build refinery. Um, I think there is a way to convince um, industry players to get their act together and move. And I believe the funding will be available, subsidies. So it's not a matter of making financial case. It's a matter of making tactical strategic decision by the gover governments. And I think Wait. now situation is unique in European uh, capitals and uh, in in the United States, as I said, Canada, India, to come together around this issue and uh, build a plan which can be executed. I think in the U.S. we had an interesting example with natural gas during the energy crisis, really through the 70s and 80s. 
natural gas was regarded by the US government as a depleted resource of no future. And uh, then along came a technology, uh, a man called George Mitchell working with the government, uh, developed fracking, and that has entirely changed the picture. But it's taken all those years. It doesn't happen overnight. But there is a case of overcoming a seeming natural shortage. I, I would like to point out at this juncture that we are trying to get reintroduced and it looks like we'll get a bipartisan bill reintroduced for Senate Bill S-2093. Uh, Marco Rubio uh, uh, introduced it and uh, Tipton in the House introduced it. And this, this is to uh, start a rare earth metals cooperative and deal with the thorium and actinite issue through a thorium bank strategic reserve. We don't care what you call it, but it's an offtake stream and a liability uh, mitigation stream for, for taking the actinides out of it. And so that these mines that mine phosphor or mine titanium or iron or whatever, they can finally take their waste stream and contribute it cooperatively to a supply chain. They'll, they're happy to get rid of it because right now it's a liability, right? And, and then conversely on the other side, companies like Hitachi and Ford and General Motors can pay to have it refined into metals. So there is a solution out there. We just need to execute on it. And, and it's not, as, as David pointed out, this is not a matter of billions and billions of dollars in years and years. This is something we could execute on rather quickly if we really wanted to. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time. So a last word from both of you, looking to the future, David. I'm an optimist. I would like to see independent supply chain, independent of China, a few countries together. And John. Well, I'm a bit of an optimist too, but I'm also really a realist. And I, I understand that after uh, 15 years of trying to you know, get this issue done, uh, we need the United States government and the White House to make the same sort of strategic infrastructure investment and sort of a build it and they will come solution because we aren't going to get corporations and people who are have a gun to their head uh, to admit that they have a gun to their head. So we just need to say, build it. And once it is functioning, uh, the world will beat a path to your door and we can bring a trillion dollars of foreign direct investment and manufacturing back to the United States and Europe where people would really like to uh, make things Thank you both very much. Until next week, that is our show. Please remember to relax, enjoy your enforced leisure, read your books, paint your paintings, but do wear your masks. This crisis is not over yet before we prepare for the next one. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your